0: From the Heart.org radio, this is The Fellows' Corner.
1: Welcome to The Heart.org Heart Fellows' Corner. My name is Philip Ginelli, and I am an Interventional Cardiology Fellow at Columbia University Medical Center, Presbyterian Hospital in New York. Today, I have the honor and the pleasure to speak with Dr. David Kanzari, Director of Interventional Cardiology Research at the Scripps Clinic in La Jolla and Dr. Sunil Rayo, an interventional cardiologist at Duke University Medical Center. Dr. Kanzari, Dr. Rayo, thank you very much for joining us today. Today we're going to discuss about a very interesting subject, the transphrasal access. So, Dr. Rayo, you have been implicated in a lot of publications showing the association between bleeding, transfusion, and higher mortality, especially in IRIS ACS patients. On the other hand, Dr. Cancer, you have shown in several papers the importance of a good and thrombotic regimen in ACS. So that being said, my first question is for both of you. What are the potential advantages of doing radial access as opposed to femoral access? Why should we do radial, and what is the rationale of doing radial?
0: So, Philippe, I think that's a very good question. As you mentioned, there have been a, quite a few publications over the last few years demonstrating that acute coronary syndrome patients, indeed anyone who is undergoing PCI or an early invasive strategy, is at high risk for bleeding primarily because of the aggressive antithrombotic regimens that they currently receive, including anticoagulants, parenteral antiplatelet agents, and oral antiplatelet agents. Previous publications have shown that up to 40%, and in some publications, depending on the rate of the early invasive approach, the rate of cardiac catheterization in the patient population, 70%, of the bleeding complications can be related to the vascular access site. Mm -hmm. So while a lot of the attention has been paid to pharmacological strategies to reduce bleeding risk, other publications have shown that simply changing the vascular access site from the femoral to the radial artery, in fact, Mm -hmm. is associated with a 60 to 70 percent decrease in bleeding complications. And that seems consistent regardless of the pharmacological strategy that's used. And so if you look at the broad landscape of the clinical trials and the registry data that have come out, it suggests that there's an association between radial approach and fewer bleeding complications with the same rate of procedure success. And then at least one single center registry in British Columbia has shown that there is an association between the radial approach and lower mortality at one year, which may be driven by a reduction in transfusions.
2: I would agree with that, Sunil. And I think that It also means too that while there are a number of features related to a reduction in bleeding that would favor a transradial approach, I think one of the other uh, issues that we don't routinely measure in in our routine clinical practices is that patients really seem to favor this as an approach to more rapid mobility than a transfemoral approach to And This is something that I think there are many nuances to this and that we don't always, again, uh, have a good systematic approach to, but as an example of a patient I just did this past week, who is caring for his elderly spouse, this enables him to be able to be more mobile more quickly, to be able to lift objects for the issues related to his daily living that we we just don't always think about from a relationship to a transfemoral approach. I think the other thing that Sunil pointed out is important is that aside from the more than halving of the bleeding risks associated with uh, much of the antithrombotic regimens that we use in PCI, I think it still doesn't necessarily mean that with a transradial approach we can be much more aggressive with our uh, anticoagulant and antiplatelet therapies given that still, as Sunil mentioned, 30% uh, of the bleeding complications are not going to be related necessarily to the access site itself.
1: Mm-hmm. So that being said, what do you think to use radial access in more iris patients like spiny patient or non-spiny patient? Do you think it's a good thing or do you think we should avoid that
2: or should you should encourage that? Well, I think to begin with there are at least two recently presented uh, observational single-center experiences with uh, transradial approaches to SD elevation MI in which the time to treatment is really similar to that of a transfemoral approach. And notably, these are among experienced centers, experienced operators, and I think this highlights some of the key features we'll need to discuss about how to envelope this type of program at an institution that's not routinely performing transradial. But I think this can be done. There are trials now that are being proposed to evaluate this in comparison to a transfemoral approach as well.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I, th- I think that certainly while it's an attractive Target population, it's certainly not a population that you want to start with. If you're not doing uh, transradial, you don't want to start with the ST elevation MI patient.
1: Absolutely. So, Dr. Rao, according to a recent report from the National Cardiovascular Data Registry, which uh, you have been the main author uh, in the Jack intervention in 2008. Looking at almost 600,000 patients between 2004 and 2007, only 1.3% of the of the procedure were performed uh, via the transradial access in the United States. So despite all the benefits, how do you explain that and what should be done if you want to change the situation?
0: That's a great question. One thing that uh, I should point out is in that study, we did note a slight increase or a slight trend upwards. The closer we got to 2008, 2009, there was an increase in the proportion of transradial but it really never got above 3%. You know, we don't really know what the reasons are. I think we can perhaps speculate. One is that I think there tends to be a fair amount of inertia on the part of interventionalists. They like doing things a certain way. The other issue really is training. I mean, we don't incorporate on a routine basis training our interventional fellows to do transradial ECI in the United States. That's something that I think we probably should be doing, you know, allowing for a certain minimum of transradial procedures during the interventional training process. The other issue really relates to the fact that a lot of education is provided to in practicing interventionists by industry. I mean, the reality is all of us are very clinically busy. We learn about new techniques and new devices from representatives from industry. And there hasn't been a concerted effort until recently on the part of industry to really push transradial equipment. I think we'll discuss this a little bit later when it comes to what are the limitations and what are unmet needs in transradial PCI. And then finally, I think we do have to be honest about the fact that there are a lot of low-volume operators in the United States. We're not like Europe. We're not like Canada where there are PCI centers. And if you're an operator that's doing 50 PCIs a year, chances are you're going to try and stay with what you feel comfortable with and you're not going to try and push the envelope And chances also are that you're doing highly selected cases in very, very low-risk patients. So in that sense, the perspective may be, you know, what advantage am I gaining from the transradial approach in terms of bleeding when I'm doing low-risk patients anyway? The response to that, obviously, is what David just brought up, which is really from a patient perspective, quality of life standpoint, there's really a huge advantage of the transradial approach. And, David, I don't know if you have other thoughts.
2: No, I think to your point, Sunil, there's a large opportunity here that in part supported by industry in promoting transradial intervention for the benefit of the patients that we've all discussed, for us to educate not only a younger generation of interventionists through fellowship training, but also practicing clinicians already, especially in the United States, about transradial intervention, whether it's through best practice sharing through didactic proctoring, uh, through the internet. Um, however, live case demonstrations, we've seen a rapid kind of hyper-evolution or globalization of interventional training already with unprotected left main or bifurcation or transcatheter valve. So why shouldn't it be the same for transradial intervention as well? I think, too, the practice of transradial intervention really comes from, uh, like with many other things that we learn, as you've implied, Sunil, it comes from from our teachers, right? From the people from whom we learned. And if an older generation of interventional cardiologists is not performing transradial intervention or don't feel comfortable with it, it's more likely than not that the younger generation at those institutions won't develop those skills as well.
1: So uh, I think you're absolutely right, and uh, this opened the door for another question that I have. My understanding about people not liking doing inradial is maybe relate to the learning curve. I mean, one of the limitation is that probably. The learning curve is more difficult than the femoral, and a lot of publication has been shown by Dr. Barbu from Quebec, Canada, and/or Dr. Louvar from Paris, that a tremendous improvement in success rate and procedural time can be achieved after 80 to 100 patients per operator. So, can you comment on that, especially on the perspective of patient selection? Who should be the first 80 or 100 patient a young cardiologist should take for starting the building transfrasal access practice?
0: Sure. Uh, So, you know, it's interesting. I think the issue of the learning curve is something we simply don't understand yet. I, I think it's obvious that the more you do, the better you get at it. But I should point out that we presented an abstract at the ACC in 2007 that actually showed that regardless of radial volume, the bleeding complications are less and the procedure success rates are the same. That's, again, from the NCDR. Now, that obviously is an observational data set, so it's highly selected. So people who are doing transradial are selecting patients in whom the chance of success is high. So who are those patients? I think that if you're going to start doing transradial, the number one thing you need to do is you need to go to a course and you really need to learn how to get access, what the specific patient setup needs to be in the cath lab, what equipment you need, so that you're actually prepared to deal with everything that you need to deal with when you start. The second is to select the patients very carefully. I think the best thing to do when you're starting out is to start with diagnostic cases. You know, you want to start with men because the artery is larger. The chance of getting vascular access is much greater. You want to start with low-risk patients who, chances are, they have a normal diagnostic angiogram. Just so you can get used to manipulating the catheter from the radial route. Once you're comfortable with that, I think you can go on to doing simple, straightforward PCI cases before you tackle, you know, the bifurcations, the rotobladers, the patients who have a very tortuous anatomy or very um, diffuse peripheral arterial disease. That's been one of the big problems is that it's always been a bailout procedure. And I think what we need to do is get to a mindset where it's not the bailout. It's really the default approach. And the way you get there is by starting with the right patients and not making it a hobby. You've got to commit to doing it, you know, at least one case a day before you really get good at it.
2: I agree. I think the procedure really in terms of its learning curve is bimodal. The first is access and overcoming some of the challenges of access such as spasm or simply catheter manipulation but also the second phase of this is really reducing your procedural time and advancing the technique and I think this has been facilitated as well with the introduction of new sheathless guiding catheters in some geographies as well as new diagnostic catheters too probably important to point out is the other issue is moving away from a transfemoral procedure doesn't mean that a brachial and a radial procedure are the same. Brachial procedures are fraught with a higher likelihood of complications. There's more anatomy at risk as well in comparison to a transradial procedure and this has actually been shown out in comparative randomized trials but the other issue too in terms of learning is not only getting hands-on learning as Sunil is implying but also educating the cath lab staff as well. The setup for the room is slightly different. It's important for interventionalists when they're learning a transradial procedure to understand for their cath lab team, too, how the setup of the room may be different, how the patient flow may be different, how removal of the sheath immediately at the end of the procedure, at least at our institution, is different, certainly a lot different from transfemoral in many instances. These are some of the other issues where there's a responsibility for the practicing physician to go back and educate his or her staff.
1: Mm -hmm. So, uh, Dr. Kenzer and Dr. Rao, I would like to hear some tips and tricks, some practical stuff in a, in a way to overcome some frequent pitfall or, or frequent complication. So let's begin with radial spasm. You mentioned it before. So what is your cocktail or what is your regimen to prevent and to treat spasm when it occurs?
0: So there are a variety of options available, and I think uh, interventionists have their own specific regimen that they like. We used to use verapamil. But it takes quite a bit of blood mixing. It, it tends to burn a little bit. So we've actually just gone to using simple nitroglycerin that we administer mm-hmm. as soon as we get the sheath in. Other operators I know like to actually get access and then use the cannula that comes over the needle and the Terumo access kit and inject nitro before they put the wire in. We reserve our for refractory spasm, which I think, you know, really based on just anecdotal evidence in my own experience over the last two years, We've never really had a case of refractory spasm. You know, as you get better with vascular access, the spasm issues tend to go away.
2: I'm just gonna to add to that you know, for myself it's a combination similarly of heparin, rapamil, and nitroglycerin. I think that for some challenging cases too, a little topical nitroglycerin ointment before the procedure can help vasodilate the artery as well. One of the other additional issues is spasm, like is implying this, cases of refractory spasm where we're unable to manipulate the catheter altogether. And one of the routine solutions for this is just to sedate the patient. And it's remarkable how much this can improve cases of refractory spasm. I think the other issue, too, is understanding anatomical variants. Certainly at any time when we're unable to advance a catheter, is to take a step back take a picture if needed to understand where the catheter is where the guide wire is as well because the anatomy within the upper extremity can be challenging at times too.
0: Yeah that's absolutely necessary you never want to push the catheter against resistance when you're coming from the radial artery you always want to take a picture and figure out what anatomy you're dealing with.
2: And one of the other things too Sunil is it's been debatable whether or not to do an Allen's test we still routinely do the Allen's test with pulse oximetry on the thumb I know Gabriel Stegg in Paris, for instance, uh, his institution does more than 80% transradial PCI, and they've just abandoned it altogether. What's been your approach?
0: Yeah, you know, we are exactly the same as you. Those are the one group of patients that we actually don't do the radial approach on, which is patients who have positive Allen's test. And I think you've pointed out an area of controversy. Now, one could argue that we're doing this in the U.S. because we're, you know, afraid of litigation, whatever. But I think until we have better, more reliable data on what the true rate of radial artery occlusion is and what that really means in terms of what happens to the patients, you know, our approach has really been to avoid patients who have positive Allen's tests. Or, you know, people always get confused, positive, negative abnormal Allen's test, if you will, suggesting that there's no collateral flow in the hand.
2: Yeah, there are instances certainly where we can transition over to a transulnar approach, but in an abnormal Allen's test case, that would be one where we probably wouldn't want to do it. The other issue I was just going to mention too is talking about the perceptions or misperceptions about radio artery occlusion. I think with an appropriate Allen's test, at least the uh, radial artery occlusion rate is less than five percent. And upon later term follow-up, it may be even less with recanalization of the radial artery. I think the the hydrophilic sheaths that are now available to us have really not only reduced spasm, but may contribute to a lesser rate of radio artery occlusion. I think also removing the catheter immediately at the end of the procedure with some of the more novel wristbands, radioartery artery occluder devices can also help mitigate a higher risk of radio artery occlusion too.
0: Yeah, I think you brought up some really interesting issues there, David, one of which is the fact that this really does translate into the post-procedure setting, doesn't it? I mean, you want to make sure that your nursing staff in the post-procedure arena know that they need to have specific instructions on you know, removing that band and not leaving it on for six, eight hours like we used to do in the old right. days. You don't crank it down to obliterate the pulse. You really want to use the patent hemostasis technique that's been described in the literature. And the other thing that you brought up was this transulnar approach, which I tend to think of in the umbrella of the overall vascular access issue which is none of us are sitting here saying that it's radial artery or nothing it's really part of an approach to the patient our approach has always been okay femoral if that doesn't work then we go to brachial what we should be doing is saying okay radial and you know there are gonna be sometimes you're gonna cross over to the femoral that's okay I mean that happens it shouldn't be all or none
2: and you have to be adaptive in this learning curve too and expect that your transition rate of failure for transradial access is going to be higher in the initial part of learning And then when you realize a great deal of experience with these procedures, I think that conversion rate is going to be somewhere on the order of 5% or less. I think in terms of getting started for these procedures, aside from sharing of education and practice like we've been discussing too, I think we've touched upon this, but the patient selection issue is a really important one. I agree with Sunil, the diagnostic cases are the best way to start out. I think it should be in many ways an almost assumed default procedure in the beginning so that we can become familiar with catheter manipulation and overcoming some of the challenges of access or spasm. Avoiding patients with severe vascular disease, you know, not starting with the patients whom we normally would say will move away from transfemoral, patients with severe lower extremity peripheral vascular disease, patients with multiple bypass grafts, or typically the small elderly lady, patients with small radio arteries. These are the ones to avoid at the initial part of these procedures. And I think still among many of us who do these more routinely, these are still the patients that we avoid for a transradial approach. So it is an all or nothing. I would just add one other issue, and that's when we look at polling, interestingly, on internet websites for interventional cardiology, questions are coming up more commonly than ever before. Should radial access become the default choice for PCI? Okay. And I okay. just want to share with you some of these results because I think it makes for an interesting perspective on where we are in the U.S. today where people think by voting where we should go, and that is, for example, 666 respondents on theheart.org. Among them 51% replied yes that radial access should become the default choice for PCI. On the other hand on the crtonline.org website, a poll was questioned, what is the main reason not to use the radial approach? Well, about a third said lack of knowledge and training. This is something that we have a solution for. A third said complex PCI, and I think that also relates to further education about how complex PCI can be done with even our currently available guiding catheters and equipment. And the third reason was clinicians responding claimed that they felt more comfortable with femoral access, and that was also about 33% across the board. And to me, ultimately, all of these converge to an issue of the need for more knowledge and training about transradial. And again, I think this is something that we can start early in our training through the fellowship program, but it's something as well that our colleagues who are out there in clinical practice already can learn just as readily. Absolutely.
1: And I would like just to bring the issue of one very frequent question here, which is asked, Is what about the SVG, the or the REMA patient? Do you think that the radial should be avoided on this kind of patient or we shouldn't be prone to do diagnostic of a previous bypass patient?
0: You know, I think that's sort of the second step. You know, you want to start with straightforward diagnostic cases and patients who don't have grafts and then go to the patients who do have bypass grafts. You know, accessing the left radial is slightly more complicated than uh, accessing the right. It really just involves educating the cath lab staff about how to set the patient up so that it's relatively straightforward to access the left radial. But, you know, it's just part of the process of, of learning. Uh, it can be very difficult to engage the lema from the right radial. Mm-hmm. certainly been done, but I think that's sort of the second step as you go from doing the straightforward diagnostic cases in patients who don't have grafts.
1: I agree. Perfect. So, Dr. Kanzari and Dr. Rao, thank you so much for taking your time for this educative program. And uh, I wish this discussion will help my fellow colleagues across the country to learn and perform more transferable access, which is an amazing technique with so many benefits. So, thank you so much.
2: You've been listening to The Fellows Corner on the heart.org radio.